Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Today we're going to look at abandoned love in the church at Ephesus. And I want to begin this morning by going to the second chapter of Revelation. I'll read the first seven verses, our text for today, before we continue with the message. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. As we move into the second chapter of Revelation through the third chapter, we will begin to be introduced to seven churches that John directly addresses in the next two chapters. These are seven churches in Asia Minor. And as we said last week, These are not the only churches that are in existence at this time in the first century, but they are representative churches. And so the seven churches are intended to represent not only all churches of the first century that were in that uh, that region, but beyond that, they represent all churches of all times. And each one of the addresses to the churches follows the same basic pattern. It's introduced with a name for Jesus today, the one who holds the seven stars in his hands and walks among the lampstands, and we'll revisit that in a moment. Likely, the very name of Jesus that they, are inter- that they introduce Jesus through is specific to a nature or a character of his, a, a part of his nature or being or character that will be necessary to address the issue at hand. So we'll, we'll revisit that as well. The second part of the pattern is that there is typically a praise for faithfulness or maybe a recognition of their situation. The third part is a warning of fault from sinfulness that we see here. Now, if there is two exceptions, two of the churches are not found to be at fault, and we'll deal with those in a moment as well. There is, if they do not repent, an inevitable fate that they will face if they don't address their fault from sin. And there is a call to faith by repentance that will result in a reward from God. Today, that reward is that the one who conquers because of that repentance 
will be granted to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, of these seven churches, I want to uh, overview them briefly so we know there are two that are in grave danger. That is the first church, Ephesus, that is the seventh church, Laodicea. Ephesus, because they have abandoned their first love, Laodicea, we will see, because they have grown lukewarm. After that, there are two churches that could be called healthy. Now, it may not seem healthy per se, but they are not called to repentance for sin, but rather they are warned for the looming situation that is coming up on them. And so that's why we would say they are healthy, but in a sense, they're still facing hard times. And then the three churches in the middle are all warned for the danger that is inherent within and that is pervading to overtake them. You see, friends, the issue for us today, as is so often the incorrect reading, is not to figure out which church we are most like so that we identify and we choose or we rather follow the path that is given specifically for that church But rather, we look at all seven churches recognizing their situations as realities for any church, specifically churches of today, and remembering the one who is our help for any situation. In the study of Revelation, there are two opposite ends of the spectrum which are equally wrong. Number one, you see it as prophecy, it's future. You think it only has to do with end times. And so you, you interpret everything in lieu of that. Well, let's just avoid that and we'll be fine. Or you look at Revelation only as speaking of the past and you look at that and you go how wrong they were. We just need to make sure we avoid that and we'll not have the problem. Both of those are wrong perspectives when you come to the book of Revelation. Rather, we look at all of these situations as what was transpiring in the first century, but also with a view to eternity and what God has called us to. But we recognize our place in history today and what is transpiring. And we see the call of Christ to his church for us because of what he says to them. Now, in basic Bible hermeneutics and understanding how to interpret what the Bible is saying, there is a fundamental principle that cannot be uh, 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 shortcutted in any way. You cannot know what the Bible says to you today until you come to know what it said to the original hearers in the first century or the, when it was written. We have to understand what it was saying to them, and from that, come to understand how it is applied to us today. And so as we walk through all seven churches, I want us to understand that the faithfulness of our witness will not be determined by the greatness nor the extent of our strengths, but rather in each situation, how humble, how ready, and how willing we remain to repent of sin, to focus on Jesus, And to walk by faith and obedience to him. And so this morning we begin in chapter 2 with the church at Ephesus. Let's look at Ephesus for a moment. Because the culture in which the church existed and lived is always helpful to understand the challenges that it was confronting. 
Ephesus was a great city. As a matter of fact, many thought it to be the greatest city uh, in this region of Asia Minor. It was the Roman capital for the province of Asia Minor. It was a major port city where all the trade from the east came to Ephesus to get loaded onto ships and then move out to the west from there. In addition, not only was it a great port city, but the major trade routes of the east all... Uh, terminated in Ephesus. So whether they were going onto ships or whether they were simply coming for trade, Ephesus was the center of all of this. And so we see by the great trade routes, by the capital city of government, and also the major trade ports, both government, business, and trade all centered in Ephesus. And along with that, there was another centering cultural aspect that was religion. Religion was a major center in Ephesus. The Roman goddess Roma was worshipped there. In addition, in Roman world, first century, the emperor or the Caesar was also worshipped as God. So we see this throughout the New Testament as we study the Roman Empire. Caesar was the name for the one who was to be worshipped as God. And there were temples specifically denoted to worship the Caesar of that day, which in this day it would have been Domitian. Domitian was one of the cruelest and most severest persecutors of Christians in the first century of any of all the Caesars. But most notably... Ephesus was home to the mother goddess of Artemis. Artemis. And I want to give you some perspective on how significant of a culture that was really transpiring religiously in Ephesus was taking place. The temple that was built to Artemis was known to be over 60 feet high to the roof. Give you some perspective, that's roughly two and a half times the height of the room you're sitting in here. But the span of it in width and length was more than double the span of a football field today. Now when you gain scope of the size of this temple, you begin to understand the extent and the vastness of how this religious practice had infiltrated the culture As a matter of fact, the temple to Artemis was so substantial, it's known as one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. So historically, the emphasis and influence continues. And as we see this, we see that Ephesus was the most significant city, surely among the seven churches we are are reading of here, but in a far greater scope in that part of the world as well. It's the most significant city of all of John's addresses here. But here's what we learn from Ephesus. Cultures where religion thrives are always the best place to find religious confusion and craziness. I'm gonna repeat that. I think it's really appropriate for us in Southwest Missouri. Cultures where religion thrives are always the best place to find religious confusion and craziness. And Ephesus was no exception. The church at Ephesus came into being when Priscilla and Aquila followed Paul from Corinth and established their lives there to lead from within the church 
as significant lay leaders in the church, you might say. People uprooted their life from their home and moved to a different city. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Paul would minister there, he would leave for a time, and then he would ultimately return and spend more than two years in Ephesus ministering to that city. As a matter of fact, his letter to the Ephesians is known as likely his most significant letter specifically to the churches for this purpose, that it was not only written specifically for that church, but it was written to be circulated more regularly so all of the churches could learn what he was writing to the church at Ephesus. One might say the church at Ephesus was so important. Timothy served there for a time as the pastor. Even the apostle John is historically or traditionally known to have spent time there. That this church was so significant and so noteworthy that it was the kind of church every church of all time should aspire to be. Mostly. Mostly. But today we learn That great strength and accomplishment in gospel ministry is never an excuse for ignored sin nor a substitute for the Christian's first priority. Friends, here's what I want you to walk away with today. Jesus calls his church to our first love as the power and the sustaining strength for all of life and ministry. Jesus is calling his church. He's calling believers today to our first love as the priority of our life for the power and sustaining strength for ministry and for life. You see, the church at Ephesus was known for its gospel work is what verses one through three tell us. I mean, they had developed systems and structures, policies and procedures. They had such a tight filter of doctrinal purity that they became known for this. They were committed to pure doctrine. They were committed to faithful orthodoxy by the testing and the discerning. Remember, churches in the first century had a very limited canon of Scripture. They did not have the total closed canon of Scripture that you and I have today. And so what the church was responsible to do was to listen to the teachings, to listen to the fundamental doctrines and positions of the teacher, and to discern, are they a true apostle or a false apostle? Are they genuinely from God or are they a false teacher? And Ephesus was the leader in this. They had learned to discern in ways that every other church was jealous of, you might say. And much needed. Because as we've already seen, they lived in a culture that was replete with every false doctrine imaginable. And every false doctrine that was becoming the next fad. Not just in the culture, but among the church. It was infiltrating continually. And friends, I I argue today, we're not unfamiliar with this pattern. We're not unfamiliar with this pattern in the first century. A a cliche morphs into a meme that gets shared with, what's the harm in this? And then that meme that, that begins to be adopted advances to a personal mantra for life that gets justified by, I really find that this helps me and has helped me. And then that advances to where it becomes a pervasive ideology to consume life when it gets rationalized as how could it be so wrong if it's been so helpful? We've all seen this in different ways at different times. And even worse yet, I'll argue in a moment, 
oftentimes these very cliches that become memes and mantras and pervasive ideologies actually become known as this is the gospel. Highly religious cultures, listen to me, Southwest Missouri, are notorious for propagating false teachings, both in number and degree, and typically justified by its benefit either for church or personal or self-care and its universal good. Even in our own day, the number of issues is mind-boggling. You say, well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about different ideologies that I have seen used for the very abandonment of love for God first in the church. If you don't like your toes stepped on, you might want to put them under your chairs for a moment. I'm going to rattle off a list and I'm pretty much going to wave through the whole place. But stay with me before you shut me off. In one field, the organic and naturopathic philosophies for everything from eating to healing, workout regimens, trends and movements, even the movement of competitive sports, all the way into infiltrating every aspect of, of healthcare itself. Racism, critical theory, colonialism, feminism, political activism, communism, Marxism, socialism, capitalism, and now even Christian nationalism and any uh, number of other social issues. Abortion, sexism, misogyny, patriarchy, abuse, sexual orientation, and gender dysphoria. Any myriad of mental health issues and symptoms. Viruses and vaccines, masks, in person or online. And the, the list is endless. And, and I haven't even gotten to the list within the church. Like, like that, things that, that, that tend to divide the church from within. Preferences and, and propensities. And they're often all accompanied by competing demands of, you didn't say this right, you didn't say this enough, you didn't say this strongly enough, or you're just trying to scare us every time you say this. Yes, that's my, that's my fear. Scare people. It, it should surprise no one that the statistic I saw just a, a few weeks ago from Barna, that pastors are walking away from the ministry in numbers not at least recorded if ever seen before. Because of the stress of the job, because of loneliness and isolation, because of political divisions. And listen, I know it's not just about ministry. It's happening in many fields and disciplines across our culture. But friends, the fact of the matter are, or the fact of the matter is, rather, this is where we are. This is what we're called to confront. And that's where the church at Ephesus found themselves. They didn't invite the controversy. They confronted it. In these first three verses, we have such a tension of doing everything that is good and right and losing our heart in the midst of it. A church like Ephesus was highly committed to doctrinal diligence 
And that was not only necessary to guard against, but you could even argue that, that, that the very diligence with which they were guarding was produced by the demand that was arising from within the culture, from the number of false teachers and teachings that were constantly bombarding the church that, that became so prolific in a hyper-religious culture. And listen, I want you to be clear in hearing what I am saying today. And for the record, let me state this. I am speaking generally of the church broadly. I am not speaking of personal experience here. By God's grace, and I've shared this with pastors for the last several years, specifically the last two. For whatever reason, maybe it's because God's protected me or he's known I wasn't backboned enough to deal with it. I don't live in a culture in this church where people love to critique and criticize everything I do. And I'm thankful for that. Because there's a lot of flesh left in me. I'm not sure I'd always respond correctly. I'm not threatening you. I'm just confessing to you. (laughs) So don't think that, yes, I felt much pressure. But more encouragement from you than criticism. And I'm thankful for that. That doesn't take us out of this passage, though. Let us continue diligently with what God is saying. And that's where we come to verse 4. What no one ever wants to hear Jesus say, but I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. He issues a very strong warning to the church at Ephesus. In the midst of all their good and right work of doctrinal faithfulness and guarding of the church, doing everything they are called to do, almost, they departed from their first order, abandoned God's love. Just to pause for a moment, how do you abandon love? You think about this. How do you walk away from the very thing that every, universally every person most desires? That establishes us in life. That that fulfills and satisfies us in life. How do you walk away from that? I don't think you inherently do it intentionally. And I think neglect is often a first step. But the list alone that was mentioned already begins to make this understandable, even though that list isn't comprehensible. But it doesn't make it acceptable. You know, I shared with leaders and maybe even with you on a Sunday morning upon return from my sabbatical how one of the mentors that I uh, uh, used in my own life during my sabbatical in preparation for it made a statement to me that I don't think I'll ever move beyond. He said this, he said, there's something about gospel ministry that works against one's personal relationship with Christ. I'd never thought about that before. Surely never put it in words. That says something not just about the potential for what it can mean for me, but that is true for every Christian in the church. There's something about being the church and doing the work of the church that threatens 
to compete with our very relationship with Christ. I think that's the heart of the issue of what we are addressing here in Revelation 2 with the church at Ephesus, that their work competed with their relationship with God. You don't have to be in vocational ministry to know that faithfully following Jesus is a daily challenge. For the evil one aims every arrow of trial and temptation at the heart to lead you to abandon God's love. You ask, what love did they abandon? Was it love for Jesus? Was it love for one another? Or was it love for all people of the world? And the simple, most direct answer to that is yes. On all three accounts. Because without loving Jesus, any other love is broken, friends. It's incomplete. It's only what we can conjure up, what we can offer. You see, God saves us that his love would abide in us every day. And the very gospel that the same apostle who is writing here wrote, the gospel of John, he tells us this, that God takes us from being sinful people who are separated from him and he sets his love upon us to make us the beloved in Jesus Christ. It becomes the very name by which we are known. For the love of God in Jesus Christ that calls us to faith in him for salvation is the power that holds us in that relation. It is the strength that holds us in the love of the saints and the fellowship that we have among the congregation. And, and he tells us even in his letter of 1 John chapter 3, he says that it's our love for one another that becomes the distinguishing characteristic that the world knows we're his. And it's the love of God in which we live that is the power and strength that holds us in all of our serving, in all of our ministering, in all of our witnessing for Jesus' name. You see, when we live in that all-consuming love for God, it multiplies and it compounds love for other people, even our enemies. Why? Because that's when God loved us in Jesus. While we were still his enemies. His enemies. Jesus, on the other hand, calls us to live in God's love by abiding in him. Abide in me, he teaches in the Gospel of John. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He calls us to abide in him, to continually engage our heart, to grow in all-consuming love. For Jesus, an all maturing love, an all seasoned love, an all applying love. You see, abandoning their first love basically means that they had lost their zeal to witness. They were so focused on preventing wrong things from coming in that they lost the zeal to go out and invite everyone to come in. They lost their zeal to share the gospel so other people could come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and I find the word abandoned so interesting 
They, they didn't come to a point in their life where they realized, you know, these are the tenets of our faith. These are the positions that we've staked ourselves on and that identify us. And, you know, we, we're not sure about those anymore. They didn't come to a place where they went, you know, we're kind of changing what we believe. We've thought this and we've taught this, but now we're going to move over here. They didn't come to believe something different than what they had believed. They just abandoned the one for whom they were believing it. They drifted, if you will, away from the reason that they believed what they believed. They still held to the tenets of their doctrine. They just stopped inviting other people to come and join them by faith in Jesus. You know, we think about the list from earlier. It's easy to see how abandoned becomes so common. With so many, the argument that became most prevalent in my own understanding, and, and of course with pastors in my realm, if you will, is that whatever the point was, it always seemed to come to this in their argument. This is the gospel. And they weren't talking about the gospel according to the Bible. They were talking about that implication, that application, or that inference because of the gospel. And that's what became most deceiving. That in the good work, the definition of the gospel got convoluted so the work became the priority and made the gospel something other than what God's word says the gospel is. It's much more common than one might imagine when our pursuit becomes about the target and no more about the compelling motivation of love. Let me dial this in to try and make it a little more understandable with some more common ways that this is true as well. We, we believe that it is God's will to have a strong marriage, a strong family, to raise your children for Christ. And these are all good and right things. And we hold to them, we defend them, we pursue these things ardently. And so we fill life with everything to accomplish that end. Be it self-care, marriage help, retreats, counsel, kids activities. Who doesn't love to see their kids smile and to hear them laugh? It's addictive. A few improvements get noticed, so we push a little harder in those areas. Pushing a little harder, we, our schedules get challenged, our resources begin to come into conflict of what do we do here or there, and press, uh, preferences begin to conflict. So we, we have to choose where are we going to focus. And little by little, it leads to less God in life and more things that we begin to pursue because of God. We substitute any area or issue of life and the same path, the same progression can be followed all along the way. You see, no one sets out to abandon God's love. But many wake up one day to realize they no longer see the shoreline of God's love because they've drifted so far out to sea chasing the good things. And Jesus says, this I hold against you. You've abandoned. You've walked away. One little small step at a time from what is first in all things. Love. He says, remember where you've come from. 
and repent from where you've drifted to. I want to offer you four remembrances. Four remembrances for every Christian to live in God's love. And as he speaks to the church at Ephesus, I believe he's speaking to LifePoint today. To you, to each of us in the room. First of all, remember where God's love found you in Jesus. Remember Jesus' words reveal a simple pattern of remember, repent, return. Remember, repent, return. This is not a complicated system. It's not a formula that we can just rotely move through, but to genuinely emerge our life into, and and, excuse me, indulge our life into, to remember where Christ found us and met us, ultimately where he bestowed his love upon us and forgave us. Turn from where we've gotten to, repent, and return to where Christ is. You see, if you are to live in God's love, you must stay close to where it found you. I don't mean a geographical place or even a historical moment in time. But let me ask you this. Do you remember when Jesus saved you? Do you remember that? Do you you remember that? I'm not calling us to remember so that we recreate a moment. Quite frankly, that's one of the biggest drugs of Christianity today. We keep trying to recreate moments. And we live from one high to the next. When instead Jesus says, abide. Do you remember your heart burning hot with the conviction of God. And the Spirit speaking to you and going, no more. This is not for you. This is not of me. This is not the way of life. Stop. I'm calling you out. But lavishing His love upon you in such a way that the heat of conviction quickly turned to the warming heat of love that pervaded your whole being. Maybe you remember where you were at when this struck you, and maybe you don't. But you know how God and his love has covered you throughout your life. We remember that Jesus came to earth and that he died for us, that we might abide in him daily. That's why we are baptized into his death that we might be raised in his uh, resurrection to new life and we might be ascended with him sitting at the right hand of the father where he is interceding calling us by name for the very needs of our life he fills and consumes our heart by his love that he might be the catalyst for all in us but when we fail to fill our heart whatever we do only leads to abandonment. Jesus calls us to abide in him as our priority, to remember the gospel as of first importance. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and, three and 4, that I gave to you of first importance that Jesus Christ died according to the, uh, the, yes, that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised according to the scriptures. 
Why? Because this is the essence of the gospel. This is the very core of God's love that is set upon us. We know God's love because of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. And that's what he is calling us to abide in as our priority for life. If you come to our Covenant Membership Seminar, the Navigation Series, you will be introduced to what we call the life compass of a Christ follower. And on that compass, the northern point is that we are worshipers of God, that we are given a new heart as Ezekiel 36 instructs, that he takes our heart of stone and he crushes it and he replaces it with the heart of flesh. And in that heart of flesh, he puts his spirit to abide within us that we might know him and that we might relate to him, that we might abide with him. This is where God has found us in his love through Jesus Christ. We calibrate all of life because any other direction Direction, any other activity in which we move without first calibrating life to God in Jesus Christ by his love will always be a move of abandonment. Setting our heart on Jesus every day is the priority for every Christ follower. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, set your heart on things above. Set your mind on things above. Where Christ is seated. He and he alone is the center of our whole being because in him the love of God has been made manifest for us. Second, remember, remember, serve others out of the overflow from Jesus. Failing to serve out of the overflow is what got the church at Ephesus into this. They just went through the motions and they were good motions. They were right motions but they were loveless motions. Be sure to take note of this. Jesus never said, stop doing your good work. What he said was, you've abandoned love and you're not doing your good work out of love. You're not being motivated by me. You're motivated by being right. You're motivated by being victorious in your own paradigm. You're motivated by something other than me. And the good work of the gospel in guarding our doctrine in our fellowship does not stand in opposition to love, friends. But our work for Jesus in all serving and in ministry can never be separated from love for him. This is why the Bible instructs that what we do for others is because of what he's done for us. That must always be our defining motivation for love to remain. And the reality is so often we are reminded of our overflow from Christ only when we are serving others. When we reach the end of ourselves, You see, serving reminds us of what Jesus has done for us, especially when we see him use us to bring others close to him. You can be in a four or five year old classroom And thinking you're just going through the motion, serving parents so that something can take place and they can have a moment of reprieve while they sit in the service and you're doing that. And then all of a sudden in the story time or the craft time or the game time, that little five-year-old asks a question that nails you to the back wall. And in an instant, you see yourself before Christ and you realize he's the reason. That's God working through the serving Serving reminds us of what Jesus not only has done for us, but what he's doing in us. 
when we know that our strength is gone and it's weak or failing and, and, and we think we have nothing to offer, but in that moment, whether it's a simple passing in the hallway and, and a, a brief conversation where, where we offer a simple word of encouragement, we just thought it was the first thing on our mind, but it ends up becoming the motivating fuel to break a hard heart or to lift a wounded heart so that somebody walks out of the week of destruction before and walks into the week remembering what God has done for them because of that word. It can be so simple and yet so profound. We see how God setting his love upon us and us just reminding others of what we've been reminded of likely by others becomes an overflow out of which we serve instead of just trying to go through the motions. Third, we remember that when you fail or struggle to love others, we must always return to Jesus before and more than we strengthen the effort of our work. You see, love for other people only wanes for one reason. And that's because real love for God is weakened. At least as our primary motivation and maybe in our full obedience. Sometimes our love for God weakens and we're still absolutely adamant that it has not and we have to be convicted of our own confused motivations it can be a challenging confession especially when you're striving to serve faithfully when you're confronting patterns of life or ideologies that are contrary to biblical teaching which is such a critical component of discipleship and maturity in Christ when you're correcting patterns of behavior that are explicitly sinful when you're counseling in patterns of thinking that align with biblical truths and you're trying to confront the patterns that do not align with those or when you're confronting barriers to or problems that are attainable and, and you're trying to help someone get over what they are uh, stumbling with, how clearly we see other people's problems while blindly we walk into our own. But in all of these scenarios, we, we can become so focused on defeating sin. We can become so focused on victory or even helping others to conquer their sin that the battle itself overtakes our heart. We become more bloodthirsty than blood remembering of the blood that loved us in Jesus Christ. You see, love for others, friends, doesn't mean we tolerate or coddle sin. But it does mean that when love ceases to be our motivating strength, instead of doubling down on our efforts, we bow down and return to the Lord. We go, Lord, whatever I've lost, wherever I placed it, bring it back to me now. Because we know without his love consuming and overflowing from us, we have nothing to offer others that will last beyond the moment. Surely nothing that will be of eternal value. And the fourth remembrance is that there is no greater love than sharing the gospel that calls people to trust in Jesus for salvation. And maybe this, maybe this is the most acute description of what transpired in Ephesus, of what transpires in the church today. Doing everything else other than sharing the gospel and calling people to faith and salvation. You see, Jesus warns that truth without love leads one to abandon his mission. 
But in these verses, specifically in verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What were the works of the Nicolaitans? They were the followers of the teachings of Nicholas, who was likely one of the first deacons that was appointed in Acts 6 with Stephen. And Nicholas traditionally is known to become one who began to teach that you can, as we would dial it in today, you can love without bothering with truth. Are you tracking with me? It's tolerance, it's acceptance, it's whatever goes, you just have to keep feeling towards the other. And Jesus warns that truth without love leads one to abandon his mission, but love without truth is no love at all. The mission has already been abandoned. You see, love for God is the priority of life, our source and strength in all believing and living, in all of our fellowship and community, in all of our witnessing. And without all things being motivated by love for God, nothing ultimately matters, for we do no good work apart from him. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. God's love was demonstrated on the cross when Jesus laid down his life as a sacrificial payment for our sin. That's why we hold to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He was our substitute who took our place and paid our sin debt before God. And that's the way he sets the love of God upon us. It always leads to the heart of the gospel and to God's love in Jesus Christ. In all our good deeds, the eternal love of God in Jesus Christ is the distinguishing mark of our message, of all of our labor and serving of all of our life. That's why we are called the beloved. The beloved of God. Friends, Jesus is not simply calling us to feel something from him today. Please hear me say that. That's a convoluted perversion of the word love that is so easily embraced today. He is calling us to remember, to repent, and to return to him, to be filled by him as the motivation for all of life. For the good work of the gospel is not opposed to love, it's motivated by love. And how we love others is not only true to the gospel when done out of God's love, filling our hearts first. It's the only way it's done. And cultivating instead of abandoning love is only done as we walk closely with Jesus every moment of every day. Jesus calls his church to our first love as the power and the sustaining strength for all of life and all of ministry.